The gospel readings this morning each come from the evangelist John, reading first from chapter 2, and then two verses from chapter 20. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then from chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. My first year in divinity school, I had a part-time job as a waiter in a steakhouse. I learned a lot of things that year. Like, what do you say when you drop a baked potato with sour cream on the shoulder of one of your customers? I said, I won't charge you for that one. (laughs) Or how to open a bottle of wine or burp a champagne bottle without spilling a drop. The wines to recommend to go with the meal. Of course, the recommendations were a lot easier back then. The whole wine list consisted of only about 10 wines, nothing like the exhaustive wine list most restaurants throw at you today. Americans drink a lot more wine than they used to. The current average is about 12 bottles a year. I don't have the figures on the annual consumption of wine for Presbyterians, but I would venture it would be higher. They drank a lot of wine in antiquity. You probably have heard that safe drinking water was hard to come by, whereas wine was plentiful. Albeit most of it was more like Mogan David or Ripple 
than it was a fine French or California wine. Like a lot of college students, Robert Parker fell in love with wine as a student. After taking a degree in law, he worked as an attorney for 10 years before devoting himself full-time as a wine critic and hosting a pioneer, pioneering website, Robert Parker Wine Advocate. Apparently, Jesus was also a pretty good expert on wine. He could have hosted a website, Jesus on Wine. Which brings us to the little story of the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine for a wedding at Cana. Unlike the other miracle stories, this one seems trivial, almost superfluous, a bonus. No one's life is at stake here. No one is suffering a serious illness. Running out of wine at a wedding doesn't seem so urgent as to demand a miracle of Jesus before he thought the time was right. That is, unless you happen to be the host of the wedding feast. Was it really important for Jesus to turn water into wine? Certainly not important in the sense that a life is at stake. But within the context of John's gospel, the miracle at the wedding in Cana is very important. For in John, Jesus Jesus performs only seven miracles, and they are all referred to as signs. And this is the first one. Signs are special kinds of pictures, stylized pictures really, like the drawing of a person in a wheelchair that designates handicapped accessible. Signs instantly convey special and important kinds of information. As you know, a red octagon tells us to stop even if the letters are obliterated. We know that a skull and crossbones always means poison. A cross stands for Christian. A star of David means Jewish. A red light means stop and a green light means go and a yellow light means be cautious. Signs convey crucial information. But more importantly, signs stand for some important reality. What a stop sign really means is you had better stop because that guy coming on the other street is expecting you to do so. Signs signs point beyond themselves, identifying or directing you to something important. All of which is to say signs demand a response. A stop sign demands you respond to its message by stopping, accept its message or fail to respond to the sign and you pay the consequences. For all of their power to convey meaning, signs by themselves can also be quite ambiguous. Signs without explanations can mislead or convey the wrong message. If I hold up two fingers, what sign am I making? V for victory? Peace, brother. Or two shots following the foul? The spoken word always complements, that is, completes the sign. The evangelist John relies on all of these dimensions of signs in writing his gospel. John begins and ends his gospel with signs, and 
between, he writes a lot of words to make clear what these signs are all about. In the prologue to his gospel, John paints a verbal picture of Jesus as the word that in the beginning was with God and was God. In our text for today, John interprets the first miracle of Jesus at a wedding in Cana of Galilee as the first of his signs. And at the end of his gospel, John writes this postscript, Now Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. When we read the story of the wedding feast at Cana, our first thoughts may turn to the miracle of turning water into wine as the sign Jesus is talking about and that John is writing about. But the story has many more signs than that. The whole story is overflowing with symbolic signs pointing us to faith, to Jesus, and to God What does this story signify? Within the context of the Gospel of John, the Cana wedding scene marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The story also serves to suggest how Jesus is different from the Jewish tradition from whence he came. And you can't talk about Jesus and wine without the sacrament of Holy Communion coming to mind. John wrote his gospel in order to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. For us today, the wedding at Cana story fulfills the purpose of John's gospel to the degree that the story confronts us with the life choice of believing or not believing in the God that we know in Jesus. I think this story presents us with three choices, three divergences, three ways of being in the world that we face every day. As does the entire Gospel of John, the Cana story demands that we choose between affirming that Jesus' presence changes things for the good or living as though Jesus' presence really doesn't make much difference. Our greatest failing as Christian people may be our failure to act as if Christ is present with us. Do we see the presence of Christ among us? If we don't see Christ as present, it should come as no surprise that we are indifferent to the pain and suffering of our world. But if Christ is present among us, does not that presence demand something out of us? Tolstoy said that if there is no God, then all things are permitted. So also, if we don't see Christ as a living presence in our lives and in our world, then our world is a dark and gloomy place, and all that matters is what we are able to grab and keep for ourselves. But when we see Christ as present in the world, the world is different. We are different. When we recognize Christ as a guest at our affairs, such as at a wedding or in worship or at work or in school or in our family or in any of the mundane activities that fill our days, then we can see even commonplace objects and routines for what they really are, shot through with God's glory. The incarnation is usually talked about 
as how it is that God was present in the man Jesus and how that presence changed him. But perhaps incarnation is more about Christ being present in the world and how our world is different because of Christ's presence. If Jesus' presence at a small town wedding in Galilee made a big difference there and then, how much more does Christ's presence in our world and in our lives make a difference today? Secondly, the Cana story asks, do things have to be done at the right time? Or is there never a wrong time to do the right thing? Jesus' comment to his mother, my hour has not yet come is critical to understanding this story. Remember, John is writing this story in the past tense, long after Jesus had lived and died. John knew that attending a wedding as a young man was not the springboard to Jesus' ministry. John knew that the hour had not yet come for Jesus at Cana. It wasn't the right time for Jesus to act Yet Jesus does act. Jesus does respond to the human need for more wine at the wedding. Jesus does the needed and right thing, even though he protests it is not the right time to do so. On this Martin Luther King birthday weekend, I cannot think about the dilemma of do things have to be done at the right time? without remembering the words of Martin Luther King from the Birmingham jail. At the time, a lot of good church people, a lot of clergy, were saying, we are all for greater civil rights for all, but the time is just not right for us to push the struggle for justice. Maybe next year, maybe in the near future, but not now. It is not convenient. To which Martin Luther King said, the time is always right to do the right thing. In other words, it is always the right time to do the right thing. There is never a wrong time to do the right thing. Or to use words such as Jesus used, the hour has come. The time is always right to do what is right. Of all of the eloquent words and provocative calls for justice delivered by Martin Luther King, none have weighed as heavily on me as these ten words. The time is always right to do what is right. I confess my complicity in saying that yes, that's the right thing to do, but, but it's not yet the right time. Is there ever a wrong time to talk about the legacy of racism? Is there ever a wrong time to do something about the deplorable conditions in George Mason Elementary School and other buildings in our public schools? Is there ever a wrong time to insist that even a poor person deserves to sleep in a warm room? Is there ever a wrong time to offer hospitality and welcome and respect 
to the stranger and foreigner who resides in our land, no matter the land of one's birth? Isn't it always the right time to do the right thing? That's the issue this little story about a miracle at a wedding in Cana raises for us. Do we hold back from doing the right thing because we don't think it's the right time to do so? Or do we recognize that the presence of the Lord among us means the time is right now? What better time is there to do what God calls us to do than right now? The Lord is here among us. The hour has come. And third, the Cana story challenges our notion that there is not really enough grace to go around by reminding us the grace of God is marvelously abundant. How often do we moan and wail there is not enough time and not enough grace to go around? How often do we say, I know what I should do, I know what I could do, but I just don't think I can squeeze it in. How often do we complain, we've run out of wine, and then look in disbelief when it turns out, yes, there's more than enough wine to go around, thank you very much. We are anxious about how the party can go on when the tap has run dry. To which the evangelist John says, the tap will never run dry. There is more grace than you can imagine. Let's go back to the story itself for some clues here. Think about it. There were six jars of water that held 30 gallons each. In Jesus' hands, that comes to something like more than 500 bottles of wine. Now, have you ever been to a wedding where they drank 500 bottles of wine after the initial wine ran out? That's how bountiful God's grace is to us. We feel like we're running on empty. But with Christ present, there is no limit to how long this party can go on. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard said that the church reverses this miracle at Cana. He wrote, Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned wine into water. That is, we squander God's good gifts to us. We're swimming in God's abundance, but we can only see the mud puddle at our feet. We think that first taste of life was the good stuff. To which the evangelist John would reply, you ain't seen nothing yet. Everybody else serves the good wine first and then the cheap stuff. But with Christ, it is first class start to finish, and good wine lasts. Well, maybe Cain is not just a trivial story after all. For sure it is not a theological treatise on miracles and the person and work of Christ. Cana is a sign of a too often forgotten treasure of faith, 
Faith is about joyful, full, effervescent, abundant life in the presence of Jesus. The life of faith is about the abounding, unending fullness of life with God and in the presence of the Christ. Good wine lasts. In one of my favorite poems, Robert Frost writes, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry that I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. At Cana, we are invited to take that road that leads to faith and life with Jesus Christ, a path that makes all the difference. For good wine lasts. As they say in New Orleans, laissez la bonne temps rouler. Let the good times roll. Let the good times of faith roll. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.